The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. If you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to find your place in Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, and this morning we're going to look at verses 14 through 20. Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 20, and I'm preaching on the subject, responding to the resurrection. As I said earlier, my original desire was really to have the theme of after Easter or after the resurrection. And we see that theme in our passage as the Lord appears to his disciples after Easter or after the resurrection to give them some important instructions concerning their lives as disciples. The passage before us, Mark gives account of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to his disciples, and he reveals in doing so that the resurrection demands a certain response from Christ followers. This text reminds us that what we celebrated last week and what we celebrate every Sunday uh, should solicit a certain type of lifestyle response from us who bear Christ's name. Yesterday, we went up to Rome, Georgia, trying to keep with social distancing measures, but wanting to get out of the house, we drove up to Rome to visit a strawberry farm we had visited back when we lived in Cedartown. And Laura called and checked to make sure this strawberry farm was open and uh, made sure that with all that's going on, we could visit there and stay safe. And sure enough, they're open because they're providing food, strawberries, amen, that's food, you need those. And then also, you know, they have the social distancing measures in place. So even when we pulled up, we saw a line of people all six feet apart. But as we pulled up, we were told, hey, we're shutting down, no more picking strawberries today. And so I didn't just turn around, I went and parked. I thought, well, maybe there's a way we'll slip in if we walk up there. So we went up and, and checked, and sure enough, checked second time, they weren't going to let us in. We'd driven all the way up to our Murchie to do this, and so a tad bit disappointed, as you can imagine. And, you know, I'll be honest, the old man within me, the old flesh, was uh, wanting at first to have kind of a negative response, right? You can imagine. Uh, but then I was reminded, hey, I remember that they have strawberry ice cream here. I mean, we may not be able to pick strawberries, but if it, we at least get some strawberry ice cream for the kids, it might make it at least halfway worth the trip all the way up here. So we went and got strawberry ice cream for the children. Hey, I was tempted to have the wrong type of response and I tried to come up with the best response possible to make the situation worthwhile. And we're reminded in life that certain events demand certain types of responses. And when it comes to the resurrection, uh, Jesus' victory over death solicits a certain type of response from us. If we want to be all that God wants us to be, we need to understand the responses we should have to the resurrection. If we want to have victory, joy, and peace in life as we face trials and temptations, testings, and tragedies, we need to understand the responses we should have to the resurrection. 
And if Tabernacle is going to be a lighthouse of hope and help in this community for those who are in need, we need to understand biblically from Jesus the types of responses we should have to the resurrection. Now consider from our text this morning as I preach verse by verse four different responses we should have to the resurrection. Number one, Jesus' post-resurrection appearance to his disciples reminds us that we should be on guard against spiritual hardness. We should be on guard against spiritual hardness. Uh, In verse 14, Mark records that later Jesus appeared to the 11, that's the 12 minus Judas, He appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. If you remember, uh, the women were the first witnesses of the resurrection and they reported back to the disciples. And initially, the disciples didn't believe the women's report. And so Jesus appears to the disciples personally. The first thing he does, according to Mark, is he rebukes. This is a strong correction. He rebukes their unbelief and hardness of heart. Now, the three gospel writers who give an account of this post-resurrection appearance, Mark there's three. Mark does here. Luke does in Luke 24, 38. John does in John 27, 20, verse 7. The three gospel writers who give an account of this post-resurrection appearance all mention this rebuke. So we know it's significant in the Bible. And this correct, correction from Jesus, although it may seem stern, It was necessary when one considers the forgetfulness, the spiritual forgetfulness of the 11. Remember, in Mark's gospel alone, we've seen that Jesus predicted his crucifixion and resurrection three times. Mark 8.31, Mark 9.30, Mark 10.32, the passage we looked at last week. And despite his threefold repetition, the disciples were still prone to forget important spiritual truth. Why was this true? Well, we believe that the disciples were so fixated on spiritual prominence and prestige associated with the physical kingdom that they missed the spiritual realities of Christ's kingdom. So when Jesus showed up, he had to give them some stern words of correction, and he rebuked their hardness of heart. That word hardness is a compound word in the original Koine Greek language of the New Testament. It contains two words, one that has our word for, or excuse me, one that has a word for heart. And cardia, from which we get cardiac. And another word from which we get our word sclerosis, for the harden that we use for the hardening of arteries. Now, I've seen memes how many people are gaining their Corona 10 or their Corona 15 as they are at home in quarantine. There's the temptation to 
eat. I saw this morning a friend on Instagram posted that she was uh, making Rice Krispie treats already this morning for her family to snack on throughout the day. Uh, for me, I've, I've tried to uh, stand on guard against that temptation by reading some health and wellness books during this time. And I was reading a book this past week that uh, talked about this condition in America and our problem with heart disease and the hardening of the arteries. And the, the author, though not a Christian, actually mentioned these same Greek words. It's the language from which we get our idea of fluorosis, the hardening of the arteries. This language is only used two other times in the New Testament, and both times Jesus uses it, he uses it in rebuke of the Pharisees. Matthew 19, 8, Mark 10, 5, because the Pharisees misunderstood the teaching of the law when it came to marriage. And now Jesus has to use a, a stiff word reserved for unconverted, religious, self-righteous people, and he has to apply it to his disciples because they hadn't listened to his teaching. And the verb form of this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament to warn us. In Hebrews 3.8, we're warned, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And we see here an appropriate response to the resurrection. As the Lord's children, as Jesus' followers, as we traverse this earth and live life in relationship with God, as we seek to be witnesses in our families and our community, as we desire to experience the abundant life of Christ, we've always got to be on the lookout and make sure that our hearts aren't becoming hardened by the things of this world. Jesus' rebuke reminds us here that this is a posture of a disciple who's really following the Lord. He or she is always on guard against spiritual dullness. He or she is consistently trying to keep his or her eyes fixed on the truth of Scripture and the realities of redemption. Disciples know, mature disciples know, there's always a tendency to forget. There's always a tendency to wander. There's always an tendency to let one's heart and mind become filled with the things of the world so as to forget the things of the Lord. And aren't we often like these first disciples? Don't doubts and forgetfulness sometimes fill our hearts and minds? Don't we sometimes allow disappointment as the early disciples did make us forget who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? Don't we sometimes allow tragedies, troubles, and trials to blind our spiritual vision? Have you doubted Jesus and given up on him in a sense because of some hard thing in your life? Has God let you down in some way? Are you doubting whether or not he is good and whether or not he is really God? Are you kind of like those first disciples? Have you just gone back to the house and put your feet up on the table and reclined and forgot everything Jesus has said? Do you feel like he's abandoned you and forgotten you? Hey, be on guard. Don't allow the arteries of your spiritual heart to become clogged and hardened. Take 
comfort in this passage. Remember that even when you're tempted to doubt, Jesus still loves you. Even when we are faithless, 2 Timothy 2.13, he remains faithful. And if Jesus could talk to you today, he would lovingly speak about the hardness of your heart and encourage you to put your faith in him once again and to lean on him. He would encourage you to remember the perfect life he lived on your behalf. He would encourage you to remember how he died for your sins. He would encourage you to remember how he was raised from the dead. He would encourage you to look firmly upon him so that he could squelch all of your doubts and give hope and help where you're hurting. See the example of Jesus here. When we are overcome by doubt and darkness, A relationship with him will help. His voice alone will comfort and cheer. So let's be on guard against spiritual darkness. Number two this morning, see a second reminder from the resurrection. Not only should we be on guard against spiritual darkness, number two, we should make it our mission to tell others about Jesus. We should make it our mission to tell others about Jesus. Our Lord continues his instruction right after rebuking the disciples' unbelief in verse 15. Mark says, then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now here we we have an account of what we often call the Great Commission. We often reference the passage in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, or we reference the passage in Acts, the book of Acts, Acts 1, 8. But we see Jesus giving the same great commission here, just stated in different terms by a different author. We see it given in Luke 24, 48 through 49 as well, and John 20, 21 through 23. It's the great commission. Jesus' marching orders for the church. Notice it comes on the heels of Jesus reminding his disciples of who he is. So in order to be good representatives for Christ on earth, we have to first of all be secure in who he is and what he's done. And then he gives us this mission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now, this word translated or this word preach in our Bible has often made the Great Commission, it's often confused us concerning the Great Commission. See, when we hear the word preach, we think of Pastor Patrick or some other preacher and what that preacher does on Sunday morning. He tries to dress a little bit nice and get behind a big wooden lectern or pulpit and he preaches. The word preach here doesn't necessarily have those connotations. Again, for us, the word preach is loaded with baggage. I remember my grandfather telling me the story about my sister. My grandfather was a preacher for over 50 years, and I remember him telling me the story about my sister when she was little that he made reference to the fact that he preached, that he was a preacher. And um, she said, well, preacher preaching involves this grandpa you you sent poppy you simply get up every week and tell people how bad they are and yell at them 
And for some people, they, there's those, that imagery of preaching. And of course, there's a lot of baggage with this word preach, but it's important for us to consider the original meaning of this word. The Greek word is simply a word that means to proclaim. You could circle it in your Bible and off to the side write to proclaim. Or you could write to announce. Jesus is summoning his disciples, he's summoning us to simply proclaim or announce the gospel to everyone. The Greek word is actually a word that was used of the ancient town herald. Now, now we get our news from the TV or from radio or from social media or online or from a newspaper. In Jesus' day, if you wanted to get the news, you went down to the town center or square and there would be an individual at different intervals throughout the day who would stand up and cry out and yell the town news. Jesus uses a word that was used of that individual to describe what we are to do as a church and as Christ's followers. We are to stand ready to announce or to proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So this helps us when it comes to this task of telling others about Jesus. We're not called to be salesmen or saleswomen. We're not called to close cells or to present some cleverly designed sales pitch. We're not called to change people or to convert people. Jesus simply desires for us to announce the message of salvation. Now, Mark's gospel contains something that the other Great Commission passages don't contain. Look at verse 16, how Jesus continues. He says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Jesus here gives a clause of explanation, an addendum, if you will, to the Great Commission that's not contained in other accounts of the Great Commission. And he does this in order to encourage us, to encourage his disciples, in order to give Jesus followers the right perspective that they need as they go out and announce the good news. He kind of, with this clause, takes the pressure off of his disciples and gives, tries to give them encouragement so that they can relax in this task of sharing the good news. Look at how he does this. First of all, he reminds them, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, I love that phrase, whoever believes, because it reminds us, tabernacle, it reminds us, church family, that when we are faithful to simply announce Jesus without pressure, when we are simply faithful to proclaim the gospel in our circle of influence, we can be confident that the Lord, John 12, 32, will draw people unto himself and people will be saved. People will become Christ followers, whoever believes. Jesus has many people in this city. And if we'll just be faithful to live the life of Jesus and to love the Lord and love people and be willing 
to announce and proclaim this good news in our neighborhood and within our circle of influence, guess what will happen? People will believe. Jesus has promised it. And then, so he gives that positive encouragement. Then he speaks kind of negatively and he speaks of whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now this is frightening language. Jesus speaks of people being condemned or judged. He's speaking of the reality of the final judgment. In Revelation 20, 11 through 15, those who have not been forgiven of their sin through Christ will then be cut off from Christ. They won't be given access to live in the new heaven and the new earth. Why? Because they will still have sin. Their sins won't be forgiven. And so God is love He's a God of justice as well, and he wants to return all of humanity to this perfect paradise, this perfect state. He's building, John 14, 1, what we could call Garden of Eden, part two. And for him to be fully loving and fully just, he will not be able to allow anything sinful to enter into that place because sin is what hijacked his original intent for creation. So get this, some would say, it's, God's not a good God if he judges people. No, God is not a good God if he allows sin to remain. He must judge it. And so Jesus gives this clarification for his disciples as if he's saying, hey, don't worry as you go out to proclaim, don't have fear. Some will believe, but then others will not believe and they will be condemned. Jesus gives these words because isn't rejection most often the hardest part about evangelism and sharing the gospel? Isn't rejection oftentimes the hardest part about world missions? By reminding his disciples of the surety of a future judgment, Jesus here encourages them to not lose heart. The one who rejected the disciples or the one who rejects me or the one who rejects the gospel doesn't really reject me. They don't really reject the disciple. They don't really reject you. They instead reject Jesus. And ultimately, such a rejection will result in a horrific fate. The person who says no to Christ says no to the new heaven and the new earth, and they secure their, their eternal destiny cut off from God in a place the Bible calls hell. And this reality should give us compassion and courage as we seek to tell people about Jesus. Instead of being timid or embarrassed by our opponents, we should go with love and a burden in our heart. We should be like the Apostle Paul who in 2 Corinthians 5.11 said that the fear of the Lord led him to persuade people. So Jesus here reminds us in our text, because of the resurrection, we should make it our mission to tell others about Jesus. We need to go and proclaim and announce in our circle of influence we should think of, be thinking about who in our family needs to know about Jesus. We should be thinking about who in our neighborhood needs to know about Jesus. We should have a list of coworkers who need to know about Jesus. As we shop and get haircuts and go to beauty salons and go to banks and stores, we should be thinking about 
Who can I tell about Jesus? How can I be a witness? As we interact through recreation at ball fields or in clubs that we're a part of, we should be building relationships and thinking, who can I tell about Jesus? And all along, we should not be fearful of rejection. Instead, we should be compassionate and courageous, knowing that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is made for a forever relationship with God. And those who believe in Jesus will be saved but those who don't will efface eternal separation from God. And these realities should compel us to go. It's a resurrection reminder. We should make it our mission to tell others about Jesus. Number three, we see this reminder. We should aim to live a life that makes Jesus look good. We should aim to live a life that makes Jesus look good. I have this memory from my college days that just sticks in my head. I was working at a restaurant in Marietta during the summer, and I'd made some different friends during that time working at this restaurant on Windy Hill Road. Uh, there was a man who worked in the kitchen that I only knew him by name and by face. He was often the guy who was handing me the food that I needed to run out to the tables. And we had very little conversation. We'd worked together for a few months, but I always sensed from him, he's just a friendly guy and seemed to have just a great disposition, but very little interaction. But I'll never forget one evening, we were very busy on a Saturday evening, selling a lot of food, a lot of people, a long wait list. And I went to, to pick up the food that I was getting ready to run to a table, and there was a little bit of a delay, so he was standing there ready to hand it to me, and we had just a, a minute or maybe to converse, and he said, what are you doing this weekend? And so I mentioned a couple things that I had done that morning, and I said, and then tomorrow I'll go to church. And he said, I knew it. I knew you were a Christian. I'm a Christian too. I could just tell it. And then I said something similar to him. Well, I said, I, I could tell by you. You didn't have to say much. I could tell there was something different about you. And indeed, that interaction, I believe, is indicative of what the Lord wants for all of our lives. He wants us to have a different type of life that shines like a bright light in the darkness that's all around us. Now, I believe we see this in our text in a roundabout way as Jesus continues to give instruction to his disciples. Look in verse 17 and verse 18. You may at first say, Patrick, how do you get this from this text? We'll see in just a moment. But Jesus says, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes. If they should drink anything deadly, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. Jesus here lists what we could call sign miracles that existed during the age of the apostles to confirm the message of Jesus in the ministry of the apostles. Now we see most all of these present in the book of Acts. After the book of Acts, we do not see them present. 
When one of them is mentioned, it's mentioned because a church was trying to practice it, but was practicing it, the sign gift, in an unhealthy and unbiblical way. One as well said that these verses here read like a summary of some of the amazing things that took place in the early church. Nearly all of these miraculous events are mentioned in the book of Acts. As Acts 5.12 records, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. Indeed, Acts 19.11 through 20 tells us of how the disciples, the original apostles, performed the sign of driving out demons. Acts 2.4 tells us of how the apostles were used to speak in tongues or unknown languages. And Acts 28.1-6 tells us how they were unharmed by snakes. Acts 3.1-10 tells us how the apostles healed the sick. And there are several other passages that do that as well in the book of Acts. Now notice some of the signs and wonders accomplished by the apostles. First of all, they spoke in tongues. They spoke in new tongues or unknown languages would perhaps be a better translation. Sometimes we think of the speaking in tongues or speaking in unknown languages being a New Testament phenomenon. But did you know that speaking in tongues is mentioned in the Old Testament more than it's mentioned in the New Testament? This act was foretold by the prophets. When the Lord sent the people into captivity, the Lord announced over and over again that the strange babble of foreign invaders would be proof that God's heavy hand of correction was coming down on his covenant people. Isaiah 18, 2 and 7, Isaiah 28, 11, Isaiah 33, 19, Isaiah 66, 18, and 23 are all passages in which the prophet Isaiah spoke of the people of God hearing people speak in unknown tongues and he said it would be a sign of judgment. Jeremiah spoke similarly in Jeremiah 5.15. Ezekiel did as well in Ezekiel 3, 4 through 6. Daniel did this in Daniel 5.19. Zephaniah did the same thing in Zephaniah 3.9. And Zechariah spoke in a similar way in Zechariah 8.3. So the prophets regularly spoke of how hearing of an unknown tongue would be a sign of judgment. But all of this went back to the book of Genesis where we see the first tongues speaking in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. The Babel that was heard at Babel was a proof that God had brought judgment on humanity and under the mosaic law because of that instance it was made clear that the hearing of unknown tongues was a sign of God's judgment upon God's people Deuteronomy 28:49 and Numbers 11:25 teach this to be true and the psalmists knew that this was true they mentioned this truth in Psalm 81:5 in Psalm 114, verse 1. Now, I just gave you a lot of scripture and a lot of background in order to arrive at this point. 
When Jesus spoke of the way in which the apostles and others would speak in tongues, and there's three occasions in the book of Acts in which tongue speaking was present, Jesus intended to show that tongue speaking or the speaking in unknown languages, the hearing of Babel, languages that a person could not understand, would be an indicator that God's judgment was being meted out on the Jews of the first century. It was a sign that the Lord was moving from primarily working with the Jews to working amongst the Gentiles in accordance with Romans eleven twenty-five through 27. When the apostles spoke in various unknown languages at Pentecost, it was proof for all Jews present there at Pentecost that judgment as it had happened in Isaiah's day, that judgment as it had happened in Genesis was coming upon God's covenant people. And what was that judgment? The Lord was allowing a season of hardness to come upon the Jews, Romans 11, and he was ushering in the time of the Gentiles. So we see this sign in wonder of tongues. We see another of picking up snakes or handling snakes. Now, this one has generated much controversy in our day. I had a friend who sung with a musical group and would travel around singing at different churches. And one week he was asked to speak at a church in which they handled snakes during the service. He was asked to sing at this church. And I later asked him, what was that like? And he said, well, the preacher threw a box on the stage and pulled out snakes and started playing with them on the stage and he grabbed one and grabbed it by its head and started screaming at it and quoting scripture to the snake and yelling at it. So you think he was scared of that snake? He said, no, actually, I think the snake was more scared of him. Why did Jesus announce this type of miracle amongst the early disciples? Well, we've seen earlier where it was fulfilled in the latter part of Acts where Paul was bitten by a snake and unfazed. This was a sign and wonder that pointed again back to the Old Testament in Exodus 4, 1 through 3, the way in which Moses used snakes. Then he speaks of the disciples' ability to drink anything deadly. This links the disciples to Elijah. 2 Kings 4, 40 through 41 speaks of how Elijah and others were unharmed by a poisonous stew. Do you see what Jesus is doing here with the disciples through these signs and wonders? Jesus is saying, I will validate your ministry and I will prove to all as I did with Moses, Exodus 4, 1 through 3, that you are indeed verily, truly my messengers and that you have a ministry in alignment with Isaiah. You have a ministry in alignment with Moses. You have a ministry in alignment with Elijah. You have a ministry from God. You are true messengers messengers from God with a message from God. We see here that the Lord, in accordance with the Old Testament, Exodus 4, 1 through 3, gave his true messengers signs so that when people, as they did with Moses, would say, why should we listen to you? They could see miracles to confirm their ministry. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4 speaks of this when it says, 
This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs, wonders, various miracles, and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. Jesus is intentional in giving out these miracles. The mighty works were meant to be for the apostles signs of validation. Now, we're in this age that we call the church age. The disciples went out with miracles to prove that they were of Christ and that their message was true. Today, I believe the Christian church has a different means of validating its message. The Lord intends for our changed lives, for our spiritual faith and fruit to be the stamp of validation for his message and ministry. Our lifestyle is what the Lord intends now to be a compelling witness for him. That's why I can say in response to the resurrection, we should aim to live a life that makes Jesus look good. J.C. Ryle has said this, let us never forget that Christ believing church in the world is in and of itself a marvelous miracle. The conversion and perseverance in grace of every member of the church is a sign and wonder as great as the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus spoke of this. Matthew 5, 13 through 14, when he said, we're the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city situated on a hill that cannot be hidden. Jesus prayed in this regard for us. John 17, 20 through 21, he prayed that we would all be one so that the world would believe that he sent us. You see Jesus' heart for us? He wants us to know him and to be changed by him. He wants us to live in a relationship with him that results in a radically different type of lifestyle so that others, when they see us, may in turn glorify and worship our Father who is in heaven. And so in response to the resurrection, we should be committed to living a life that makes Jesus look good. This is a proper response to all that Jesus has done because he defeated sin and death on our behalf, we should have humble hearts that want to shine for him in this world, should regularly be analyzing our lives to make sure there is no attitude or action that puts a black mark on his reputation. We should regularly take inventories of our lives and our souls to make sure nothing hinders our witness for him should make sure we live lives that show the love and light of Jesus in a world in which people need so much hope and help. We should live a life that makes Jesus look good. Let me give one last reminder and we'll close. Y'all have got to get to the restaurant, right? No, they're closed or they're open for takeout. We'll still try to finish by noon. Number four, here's the last resurrection reminder. Keep remembering where Jesus is now. 
keep remembering where Jesus is now. A lot of spiritual success is based on remembering God's truth. And look at what Jesus tells his disciples in verse 19. He says, so Mark tells us, so the Lord Jesus, after speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. This is an event we refer to as the ascension of Christ. It often gets overlooked in our love for the crucifixion and resurrection. And the crucifixion and resurrection rightfully deserve our attention. But let's not forget the ascension. It was prophesied of in Psalm 110 verse 1. And it has a great meaning for us. Right now, Jesus is indeed in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But he is also at the right hand of God in heaven. And when we live with an awareness of this truth, when we stay mindful of his current position as sovereign God at the right hand of the Father, it does a lot for our souls. See, according to Colossians 3, 1 through 2, the ascension of Christ should regularly remind you that you're not to live for the things below here on earth. Instead, you are to seek the things above the resurrection And then the ascension should remind you that as you live life on this earth and you say goodbye to loved ones who leave this earth, you have hope that this world is not the end of human life, that the soul of your loved one is now with the Father and with Jesus, Revelation 4 and 5. And you have promised because of the ascension, John 14, 2, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. The ascension reminds us, Romans 8, 34, in the very presence of God right now, Jesus is there praying on our behalf. Paul said he's at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. And as you bow your head and close your eyes and talk to the heavenly father, your prayers through Jesus go into the very presence of God. And this ascension teaches us that the Lord Jesus is ultimately in control of all things. Ephesians 1, 20 through 21, King Jesus is far above every ruler And authority, power, and dominion in every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus right now sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's got providence in one hand and sovereignty in the other, and he's overseeing and ordaining everything in the course of human history. The authorities that be, Romans 13.1 are of God and he's got the whole world in his hands and he's got me in his hands and he's got you in his hands and he's got the coronavirus in his hands. He knows all things, understands all things and even if the foundations were to be destroyed on planet earth, Psalm 11.3, we have confidence that he reigns providentially and sovereignly and may the ascension remind us of this great truth. Growing up, my grandparents who lived in Marietta had a cabin up north of Cleveland, Georgia on the road that goes up to Vogel State Park. And some of my favorite times as a child was when grandma and papa would take just us to that cabin. Enjoyed being there, but the hard part for me was when it came nighttime in that cabin. It was really dark off that 
dirt road where they had their cabin. And right across the street from their cabin was an old cemetery. And the evening I tried to sleep in the bed and Papa and Grandma were in the upstairs part of that cabin, but I'd hear the wind whipping on the hill and the mountains and there were shadows in my room from the tall pine trees outside that cabin. And I knew right across that little gravel dirt road was a cemetery. And some old man one time up there had told me a story about that cemetery. I won't go into the details, but it was scary. It was hard for me to sleep at night. Many times I'd cry out, Grandma, Papa, I'm scared. And Papa would come down groggy and try to encourage me and comfort me. I want to sleep in y'all's room. No, you can't do that, Patrick. And then he'd remind me, Patrick, I'm just right upstairs. It's where I am. If you need anything, you can call me. Don't worry. Nothing's going to happen. Go to sleep. I believe we have similar truth from Jesus this morning. As we live life in this fallen, broken world, we're going to face disappointment. We're going to face discouragement. We're going to face death. We're going to face disease as we are now. But we have this great resurrection reminder. He's right upstairs. He's at the right hand of God. And we can seek him and he can be found. We can call to him and he'll hear our prayers. He's in control of all things. May we trust in him. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.